Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. As I said earlier, we're going to be preaching through a number of different psalms, not in any kind of sequence, but really psalms that were chosen because of the way that they deal with internal struggles that we have as believers, as sinners in a fallen world, and as those who strive to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to be looking at different psalms that address those internal struggles. And as we've said, hopefully, not only help you as a believer, but also might be an area where you know an unbeliever, a friend, a neighbor, a family member uh, that is struggling in some area, that you might invite them to come and worship with us and hear the word of God and maybe see how their needs can be met in Christ as well as yours. So let me read a very familiar psalm as we begin Psalm 23. This is God's word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What if tomorrow when you went to your mailbox or the post office, you were given a certified letter indicating to you that a rich relative had died and you are going to receive an inheritance of $500 million. How would that change your life? How would your, the rest of your week, the rest of your month, the rest of this year look like if suddenly you had $500 million at your disposal to use as you please? Would you quit your job? Would you buy that car that you've always wanted or that bigger house that you think you need and or would you buy that boat that you always thought was a luxury? Would you take a few months off and travel around the world and see all the places that you've always wanted to see? My point in asking the question is to ask you really at the root of it, what is it that you want today that you don't already have? What is it that you want that you don't already have? Would $500 million provide it? Would you be satisfied and happy then? The ancient Greek philosophers, men like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, they argued out over how to define what they called eudaimonia. It was a Greek word that meant the good life. They argued that things like reason and virtue would provide the good life. And they argued strenuously against the idea that the good life came from having a lot of wealth or worldly honors or pleasure, worldly pleasures. We in this culture, in this society, and too often too much in the church, we live as though we think the good life comes from having security in our bank accounts or security in our possessions or security in our popularity in the world. But Jesus said very clearly, 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The very clear message that Jesus is communicating in that statement is that your real need is a spiritual need. Not material, not financial, not relational. Your core need is a spiritual need. And it can't be met in this world. In this physical world in which we live, we can only find insecurity. Because things like our job, our family, our friendships, our possessions, our reputation, our health, even our life can be taken away in a, in a moment. None of us has a guarantee that we will have any of these precious things, even by this evening. So if you live for your security in the things of this world, you are inherently living in insecurity. And security is something we long for at the depths of, who are, at our, of our being. And what Jesus is saying is you need security in your soul. Spiritual security. This psalm begins with one of the most familiar and also one of the reasons why it's so familiar is because it's one of the most comforting statements in all of Scripture. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What a statement. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's a strong statement of security, peace, contentment, living without want. David, in this psalm, is not talking about the absence of physical or material needs. If you know the life of David, you know his history. You know that he lived in danger, in suffering. He was cast out. He had to roam in the wilderness. He faced family members turning on him. He faced great difficulties, and yet he wrote Psalm 23 from the heart. He's talking about not an absence of physical, material, or financial need. He's talking about an absence of spiritual need. A healthy, secure soul. As Owen and I preached through the Psalms this summer, we're going to see that the reason that God put these songs or these poems or these prayers in Scripture was to teach us how to pray, to teach us how to sing. But more deeply than that, to show us what goes on in the soul of a disciple. Somebody who loves God, is seeking to follow God. The, the, the psalmists, when they wrote these songs, these prayers, they bared their souls so that we could see what goes on inside of a believer as you try to walk by faith in a fallen world. And as we look into the souls of the psalmist, we're going to see that the internal struggles that all of us as sinners struggle with, even as redeemed sinners, are very common, they're very real, and they show us how to deal with them. And that's what we're going to be looking at this summer. Psalm 23, I chose this one to begin the series because I think it's a good overview, a good summary. It touches on areas that we're going to be touching on in more detail in other psalms and in the sermons to come. Right here, David, talking about what is the eudaimonia, right here, David describes the good life. The dolce vita, as they, uh, I guess, and I pronounced it badly, I know, but that's what, how, that's what the, the uh, Italians talk about, the good life. 
And what David is trying to tell us is that the good life is the shepherded life. The good life is the shepherded life. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. An interpretation tip for you, if you've never noticed it before. In the Old Testament, when you see the Lord, the word Lord in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, all capital letters, it's indicating that in the original Hebrew, it's not a generic name for God, but a personal name for God, the name Yahweh. It's the name that God gave to Moses when Moses said, I need to tell your people whom you're about to redeem unto yourself, what is your name? What is your, your personal name? And God says, I am that I am. Tell them my name is Yahweh. And when you see the name Yahweh being used, you know that the context of it, that the deeper meaning of it is that this is the covenant that God has with his people. That we can call upon him as Yahweh because he has redeemed us. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world. He has called us to himself. He has redeemed us by the blood of the covenant. And he has entered into not just a relationship with us as a creator to a creature, but as a father to a son or a father to a daughter. And that that relationship we have with God is based upon grace, not works. It's a covenant relationship that we have with God by his grace, by his sovereign choice. And so think about it. David is saying, Yahweh is my shepherd, the creator, the redeemer, the provider, the sustainer of all things. He is my shepherd. The word shepherd is the main, you know, when you see the word shepherd in scripture, you see it from beginning to end. It is one of the main metaphors for leadership. You do not understand God's definition of leadership if you do not understand the metaphor of a shepherd. God is the ultimate shepherd. Over and over again in scripture, he says he is the ultimate shepherd and we are his sheep. When he assigned prophets and priests and kings to lead as sinners among sinners among his people, he called them shepherds. When he called elders to lead his church, he called them shepherds, pastors. Fathers are called to be shepherds of their family. And of course, Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I am the ultimate shepherd. I am the good shepherd. You realize that was a claim to deity because God was the shepherd. Yahweh is the, the shepherd of his people. And Jesus says, I am that good shepherd. I am Yahweh come in the flesh to lead. And the reason why shepherd is the image for leadership is because the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The shepherd serves those whom he leads. When a shepherd looks at the sheep, he doesn't see product for, to, to benefit his needs. When a shepherd looks at the sheep, he sees those whom he is to lay down his life for, to serve, to do whatever he has to do for their good, for their benefit, even the giving of his own life as Jesus showed us. So what is the shepherded life then? What's it look like? First of all, David says, the Lord as our shepherd gives us rest. He gives us rest. I look at a bunch of people this morning who need rest. And I'm not talking about more sleep. You need that too. Um, verse 2, 
He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Now, it's interesting when you dig into the language a little bit, because, and I'm going to say, even the ESV retains much of the, the language, the words of the old King James. Because, why? Because we memorized that. We all memorize that, and it's so stuck in our memory. And so the modern translations, I've noticed that, are very careful not to change the words any more than they have to because it messes up our memorization. But actually, I hate to say it, but some of the words are not the best translation and some of the most familiar parts of it. And, and when it says, he makes me lie down in green pastures, we tend to think food. You know, he leads me where I can graze. As I'm, if I'm his sheep, he leads me where I can graze and eat. But that's not the focus here. He'll get to food later. But that's not the focus here. I think maybe a better way to translate it would be like grassy meadows. He leads me to grassy meadows because the image there is not so much on the food but on the place of rest. Because you notice what he says the sheep do when they're led to the grassy meadows. They lie down. Sheep don't feed when they're lying down. They stand up to feed. So if they're lying down, they're resting in these grassy meadows, a place of peace, a place of rest. Even the word still waters, it, if you'll notice, and you can see it in the, in the footnotes if you have an ESV in front of you. Most of the ESVs have a footnote at the bottom. It gives an alternate translation for still waters, waters of rest. His emphasis isn't on are the waters moving or not moving, the emphasis isn't even on, uh, do these waters quench my thirst? Again, that'll come later. The emphasis is on, here's where I rest. It's an oasis. Grassy meadows, still waters, restful waters. I can find rest for my body and my soul. One of my favorite places on earth is, uh, as if any of you know me at all, is Cook Forest State Park. It's where I grew up. One of the most peaceful places on the planet. And um, it was my birthday yesterday. You all missed it. Don't bother saying happy birthday now. Um, but it was my birthday yesterday, and my wife said, what do you want for your birthday? I said, you know what I really want? It's just a couple of days in the forest. Just let me get away for a couple of days. And uh, on Friday, we spent, uh, we, we did 10 miles on the Clarion River through Cook Forest in a canoe. And uh, it was a beautiful day, 75 degrees, sunny, Life doesn't get any better than that on this side of eternity. <laughs> you know, I'm in a canoe, I've got my wife, I've got my dog. Yes, he went along. And I left my phone in the car, left my computer in my office. Nobody could get me. Rest. It's the image that David's trying to get across here. He leads us to grassy meadows and waters of rest because our souls need it. But again, you can't get it by, I mean, I would live in Cook Forest if I thought that that's what resting in Christ really means long term. That's only a momentary thing. That's, that's, it's helpful, but I can't stay there. I have to go out in the world and fight and serve and suffer. This kind of rest that David's talking about isn't based in circumstances. It's the kind of rest that the Lord gives that is independent of circumstance. It doesn't come with happy circumstances and then go away when circumstances get hard. You know the story of Pilgrim's Progress. hope most of you do. It's about a spiritual journey. Pilgrim is on a journey from, a, from the city of destruction to the celestial city. But 
in order to get to the celestial city, he has to go over through many difficult places. One of them is called the Hill of Difficulty. And in these difficult places that he's asked to go, he tries to avoid them. He tries to take all routes, and it always leads to danger and destruction. But he, he, he goes to the Hill of Difficulty, and he begins to climb. But at the beginning of it, the Lord provides a spring of water. He looks over and there's clear, fresh water. And he takes a big drink and that enables him to go with a fresh vigor to climb the hill of difficulty. But the harder it gets, the steeper it gets, the more difficult it gets. He gets to the point where he's about to give up and lo and behold, there's the pleasant arbor. A place where he can lie down, pull out his scroll to read for comfort and, 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 and sleep and rest. And then he gets up with a renewed strength and he climbs again on the hill of difficulty. What's being communicated there is the same thing that David is trying to communicate. Is that the rest that the Lord, as our shepherd, gives comes in the midst of trials and tribulations, not away from them. To rest isn't to try to escape. To get away from what God has called you to be and what God has called you to do. It means that when you need him, he will be there for you if you trust him. John Piper calls that future grace. I used to call it special grace. You know, I used to worry, what would I do? I mean, I don't think I could stand up to persecution. I hear about people, Christians suffering persecution, and I think, if I had to suffer like that, I would, I would deny the Lord in a minute. I'm, I'm really afraid I would do that in my weakness. But if the Lord calls me to climb that hill of difficulty, I trust him that he'll be there to give me the spiritual strength that I need. He'll give me the rest I need. And the strength I need to endure the trial. That's special grace. The Lord is faithful. It's what Paul described over in the last chapter of the book of Philippians. Where he talks about facing the difficulties of his life. And he says in Philippians 4 beginning in verse 11. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or, and he closes the chapter with verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He gives us rest even in the midst of the most difficult trials. Secondly, David says the Lord, as our shepherd, gives us guidance. Isn't it great that not only will he enable us, as he promises, to endure the trials and tribulations, but actually we progress through them. It'd be enough just to survive them. But what David is trying to say is that he leads us through them on paths of righteousness. Verse 3, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. When I flew back from our mission trip a little over a month ago to Senegal, we landed in New York and we drove from New York back to State College about halfway across the great state of Pennsylvania. And I have never been so struck by how beautiful our state is. It is so lush, such beautiful trees, such beautiful foliage, such beautiful flowers. It's just gorgeous compared to Senegal. I mean, Senegal has its own rough beauty, but it's brown, it's dry, it's harsh. And I realized, you know, not only do I appreciate where the Lord has placed me in a much deeper way, but it made me think of this psalm because 
in the psalm, you know, Israel was closer to Senegal than it is to Pennsylvania in terms of the lushness, the, the greenery. The, you know, it was, it was pretty dry and arid. And shepherds had a hard job in order to keep their sheep in those grassy meadows and those, next to those restful waters because they had to lead them constantly from place to place. But the sheep had to trust the shepherd. The sheep had to follow the lead of the shepherd to go from place of rest and feeding to the next fit place of rest and feeding. And David is calling that path from one place to the next, where the shepherd is leading, he calls it the, the paths of righteousness. Why the paths of righteousness? Because he's talking about the law of God. He's talking about obedience, keeping the law. That's the wonderful thing about being a Christian is you don't have to keep the law to be a Christian. You don't have to, to do what's right and never do what's wrong in order to have a relationship with God. But once he's redeemed you, once he has brought you into his covenant, he gives you his law as a gift, and that law is a guide to life. It shows you where to go and where not to go. It's the paths of righteousness. That's why people who are redeemed, people who are in the covenant community, that's why we love the law of God. We don't resent it. We don't resist it. We love the law of God. That's what Psalm 119 talks about. The psalmist there talks in glowing terms for many, many, many verses about how much he loves the law of God. Listen to uh, beginning in verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Oh, how I love your law, he says later. Because they are the paths of righteousness. As he says, your law is a light unto my path. It's walking where the Lord would have us walk. It's walking in safety. When I was raising my children, one of the most popular parenting books among Christians was written by Ted Tripp called Shepherding a Child's Heart. Still popular, I think. Um, in that book, one of the metaphors he uses, which is really helpful, visual that he uses, is the idea of the circle of blessing. And the idea is that the law of God creates this circle of blessing. It's like a fence. It's like a hedge of protection. And the law of God tells you where not to go and where to go. And it keeps you within this circle of blessing. And in the circle of blessing, if you, and he bases it on Ephesians 6. Let me read those first couple of verses for you from Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor, in your, honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. What he's saying is as godly parents take the word of God and teach their children the law of God, they're creating this place of safety. Not just safety, but freedom. Freedom to run and play and work and, and do whatever, you know, within the boundaries of God's law. But if you transgress God's law, if you go outside the fence, you go outside the boundary, what is there? There's darkness, danger, destruction. And our children will do that, often. They will leave the circle of blessing where there's freedom and safety. And they will go where it's dark and dangerous. And we need to teach our children that when they do that, the way they come back into the circle of blessing is by confession of sin and forgiveness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're immediately restored to live in that place of safety again. That's the imagery, really, that David is using here. He 
causes us, he leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Our spiritual and physical well-being is tied to our obedience. Walking in the paths of righteousness as it's defined by God's law. Our Father's rules for us are good. And we love them because they're for our good. We love God's law not because it saves us, but because it guides us. It guides us to, the, to where the pastures are green and the water is restful and still. The third thing that David says that the Lord as our shepherd gives to us is protection. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. If you're going to stay on the paths of righteousness, you are going to come to the hills of difficulty. You are going to come to the valleys of the shadow of death. That's what shepherds had to do. They had, in order to take their sheep to good pastures, sometimes they had to lead them through dark, difficult valleys to get up to the mountain pastures where they could have, especially in, in certain months of the year, where they could get the pastures they need to feed upon. And to take them through that valley was dangerous. That's where the predators stayed, looking for them, waiting for them. That's where the thieves were, waiting for them. You had to trust the shepherd to protect you. The valley of the shadow of death, again, it's, it's, it's picturesque, it's familiar, but it's actually probably not the best translation. Again, look in your footnote. The ESV says another possible translation, probably a better translation, is the valley of deep darkness. In other words, it's not meant to be specifically death as a, as a, as a danger, as a challenge. Any valley of deep darkness, any difficult trial, tribulation that you have to go through, trust the Lord as your shepherd to bring you through it. It certainly includes death. Your own death, the death of a loved one, certainly a dark valley experience. Cancer, divorce, rebellious children, being fired from your job, these are all dark valleys that believers are asked to go through by their shepherd. We need to trust him. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's shepherd language. The shepherd would have a rod, which was basically like a club. He would use it to beat off the predators or the thieves to protect the sheep. The staff was, you think of a shepherd's crook. The, the purpose of it was to guide the sheep, to keep them from wandering away. You'd see a sheep start to wander away. He'd take his crook and he'd grab the sheep and bring them back into line. Protection, circle of blessing on the path of righteousness to the green pastures. That's the imagery. You see... David is not advocating health and wealth theology here. He's not saying, you know, if you're obedient, your life is going to go easy and smooth. This psalm is assuming that your life is going to be really hard. That there are going to be those moments of respite and rest, the oases of life that he might lead you to. But much of your life is going to be suffering, difficult, trial, tragedy, hardship. You've got to trust the shepherd for that future grace to get you through it. I, uh, yesterday I was talking to my brother and he shared with me the details. I had heard that my, my nie his daughter, my niece's uh, father-in-law had suddenly died, but I didn't know how it happened. My brother was filling me in yesterday that um, this was, uh, here, my, my niece's father-in-law was a leader in his church. And um, one morning last week or a couple weeks ago, he was going to check that they were doing work on the roof of the, of the church and he was going to check on the work and he climbed up to the top of the ladder to see what they were doing to talk to them but the ladder wasn't appropriately secured and the ladder shifted, he fell 
and he fell onto a fence that had steel spikes in it, and he was impaled on it, and he bled out and died. And I was just stunned by the tragedy. And listening to my brother, you know, even at his relationship distance, being so broken by it, and thinking about my niece and her family, dealing with a tragedy like that, and you say, why? As was mentioned earlier, Ron sent me a note this morning saying that uh, Jim Weaver, we've been praying for, the missionary, the, the, the point man for the church planting work in Dakar, um, that his son was crushed. It's, it's, it's just something you don't even think of having. He's playing in his backyard, and a wall falls on him, and his foot is crushed, and very real chance he's not going to have that foot anymore. You know, and if you know anything about Jim Weaver, we've been praying for him. He's been through some severe, severe trials in the last year or two. I mean, he's trying to do probably one of the hardest church planting jobs on the planet in downtown Senegal, Dakar, Senegal. And God has asked him to climb these hills of difficulty, to go through these valleys of the shadow of death. Why, God? Why? You've got to trust him. Trust the shepherd. The shepherd will protect. The shepherd will sustain. The shepherd will guide them through it. He is faithful. This is a path of righteousness through a very dark place, but he will lead them through it. In Pilgrim's Progress, as Pilgrim began his ascent of the hill of difficulty, this is what he said. This is the poem that is recorded in Pilgrim's Progress. The hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, pluck up, heart, that's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. Or as Job put it much more succinctly, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. The Lord gives us protection as our shepherd. Fourthly, the Lord gives us satisfaction as our shepherd. That's, here's, in verse 5, the, the psalm seems to make a change. And scholars debate, does David intend to shift metaphors here? Is he, is he quickly shifting a metaphor midstream? Whereas in the first uh, four verses, he's talking about a shepherd and a sheep, and now he's talking about a host and an honored guest. Human beings, not sheep. Um, or is he still talking about sheep? And is this just kind of a, a, a twist on the metaphor about talking about a sheep and a shepherd? Looked at it, read a lot of opinions on it. I think he does shift a metaphor here. I think the language much more clearly. And, and psalmists, if you know, read the psalms, we're going to see, they're never afraid to shift a metaphor on a turn of a dime. And, and I think that's what happens here. He switches from talking about a shepherd and a sheep to talking about a, a host, a kind, gracious host and his honored guest in verses 5 and 6. The psalms point us to God satisfying our ultimate needs. And here David is saying, if you trust your shepherd, he will give you a deep satisfaction that nothing in this world can give to you. Here again, like we saw in the book of Esther, especially in our last chapter we looked at last week, here we see the feast as an important symbol of our salvation in Christ. That that is where our shepherd is leading us to this great feast he says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. It's a picture of being eminently satisfied in all of your 
possible needs, physical, spiritual, emotional, you're satisfied. There is no picture like it. Feasting and being filled. The oil that he mentions was a courtesy given. If a guest had come on a long, hard, difficult trip, dirty, tired, probably doesn't smell that great, they would take an anointing oil, which is actually perfumed oil, and put it on the guest to refresh them and to prepare them to come to the table for fellowship and communion with others. There's also an image here which is interesting. In the presence of my enemies, why? You almost get this picture of this great feast and people enjoying the food, the drink, and one another. And at the windows, you've got these people with their nose pressed up against the window, shaking their fist in anger and envy. We're feasting in the presence of our enemies. Now, it's kind of a sour note, isn't it? It kind of ruins the, the atmosphere. But again, this is pointing to what salvation is. is that, and I think, actually, he's not talking, certainly we feast in a preliminary and anticipatory way now. But he's talking about the feast at the end, I think, here more than anything. He's giving us a picture of what's coming. Remember how Haman was taken to the gallows while Mordecai, the faithful man of God, was elevated and honored. And really, that's kind of the background you have here, where God's people are feasting as God blesses them to the fullness that they've been waiting for in their salvation. They're feasting, and the enemies of God and his people are outside shaking their fists and resentful and bitter. Jesus said, you know, Paul says about Jesus that when he returns, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not all of those bowed knees and tongues confessing are going to do so in joy and praise. Some are going to be doing it in resignation and, and, and in despair in the presence of our enemies. You know, we live in a very unsatisfied society. You don't have to watch much television or listen to much, uh, many podcasts or, or read much on the internet to realize we are a very unsatisfied people. It's another insight that I had, and I'm sure many of you have had a similar experience. If you ever traveled to a non-American, North American or non-European country, in other words, a third world country or something like that. If you ever traveled there, you come back to our country, you know one of the first things you notice? Americans are fat people. Seriously, we're fat. I came back from Senegal thinking, wow, we all need to lose weight. We're so fat, and yet we're so hungry. What a sad statement on our culture. We are fat and hungry. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and my cup overflows. See, the Lord, you know, there's a great passage in the beginning of Isaiah 55 where the Lord speaks to those who are spiritually hungry, those who acknowledge their need. That's the great blessing of the Sermon on the Mount. It speaks to those who recognize their spiritual need. And so Isaiah 55 puts it in these words, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David the kind of love that David knew, the covenant love that says Yahweh is my shepherd, the shepherded life. 
Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's how we know. We can be certain that he will protect us and take us through all the difficulties to this final feast. We can be certain because of what Jesus Christ did for us. As David talks about the cup overflowing, it can, we cannot help but think about the cup that we celebrate at the Lord's table. And I read this week in preparation, one of the books that I've read for many years, one of my favorite books on the Psalm 23 is written by a Welsh uh, preacher named Douglas Macmillan called The Lord Our Shepherd. Just a little devotional type book. But in it, he tells a story about when he had, took his first communion, when he got saved, when he came to know the Lord, and he had his first time going to the Lord's table. He talked about this old, kind of uneducated pastor who was kind of rough in his language and ways, but just loved the Lord dearly. And he talked about how he presented communion that day, and he, and he quotes his words here, and I just want to read how he introduced, he held up the cup of the Lord's Supper, and he said this, Here is a father, the eternal father, and his hand comes down and it's holding a cup. Look at the cup, it is full, and it's full of the wrath of a holy, almighty God. And look, there's the shepherd of the sheep, and he's stretching out his hand to take it. He takes it and he shrinks and he draws back his hand, and he looks up and he says, Father, if it be possible, but no. His hands go up. He's taking it and he's putting it to his lips. Do you know what he's doing? He's drinking it to the dregs. And what's he doing with it now? He's licking it clean. What's he doing with it now? He's filling it up again. He's pouring into it. And it's beginning to flow over. And what is he pouring into the cup? Eternal covenant love. And now he's holding it out to you. What's he doing with it? He's handing it to you, believer. This is my body broken for you. That's the shepherd that we follow. And that brings us to the final quick point, which is that the Lord gives us all these things, but most of all, most importantly, he gives us himself. In verse 4, he says that the reason he has no fear as he faces the great difficulties of life is that he says, for you are with me. And that's really all we need to know in the covenanted life is that he is with us. Verse 6, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is, if you could summarize the covenant in one phrase, as Scripture does, it's Emmanuel, God with us. That's the ultimate promise, that because of what Christ has done in dying for our sins on the cross and being raised from the dead for our justification, for our salvation, that's what it does for us. It says that from that point on, God is with his redeemed people. He's with us, he's for us, he will be with us always into the end of the age, and we will dwell in his house forever. You want security? You want spiritual security in light of all the insecurities of this world? Bank on that. Set your feet on that. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever because Yahweh, Jesus Christ, is my shepherd. As Jesus said, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just in closing, let me ask you the question again. Complete this sentence. My life will be better when... What happens? When you receive what? When what change takes place? If your answer to that question is anything in this fallen, material, physical world, 
then you are going to live in insecurity and without real hope. But if your answer is David's answer, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He restores my soul. Then you have found real, lasting, eternal security. And that's what your soul wants more than anything else. Let's pray. Father, so thankful for the grace that has brought us into your covenant community. Thank you for opening our eyes to see our real needs instead of the needs that the world was telling us that we have. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son to be our shepherd, the one who laid down his life for us, your sheep. And Lord, for anyone here this morning that knows the, the words of Psalm 23 so well that they can recite them backwards and forwards, Lord, I pray that this morning there might be some new insight into these promises that will give them greater security and turn their focus away from earthly things. But Lord, there may be somebody here this morning who doesn't know security in Christ. They don't know Christ, but maybe they're hungry. Maybe they're thirsty. Maybe their soul is hungering for Christ, Lord, I pray that you would bring Psalm 23 to their mind, not just today, but tomorrow, but this week, this month, but Lord, that this would become something that they long for and find through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for your promises. Thank you for the covenant. Thank you for sending your son for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.